Welcome to The Build Up. I'm Kirk Pinhoff. And I'm Arielle Cass. We cover real estate for Cranes Detroit Business. Together, we're launching this podcast to give you the inside scoop on commercial real estate. We'll be bringing in experts from across the industry to offer their perspectives on the biggest issues they face today and what challenges they expect for the future. This is The Build Up. Hey, everyone. Um, my colleague Ariel Cass and I have just returned from Atlanta, where we were attending the annual National Association of Real Estate Editors meeting in lovely Buckhead, Atlanta. And uh, we're here to share with you some of our thoughts and impressions uh, that we took away from the conference. Uh, Ariel, uh, what did you glean from the conference and its many speakers and experts? So I took away a lot from it. Um, it was a, a really interesting conference with a lot to learn both on the residential and the commercial side of things. Uh, I cover residential real estate, so my biggest takeaways are related to housing and the, the way that interest rates are continuing to have an impact on the housing market um, nationally. I think that uh, one of my, my biggest takeaways was the fact that the housing shortage is in the millions. We have um, somewhere between a million and five million housing units that we need, depending on who is measuring it. Um, and new construction is continuing to lag. And then we're seeing an increase in build to rent, although it's still small and we're not seeing a lot of it here, but there is some. Um, and I think that one of the biggest takeaways was the question of recession. Everyone on the panel, on various panels, was asked whether or not we're in a recession. And I think the, the kind of consensus is if we're not now, we're heading that direction. But the recession, if it does hit when it does hit, isn't going to have the same impact as it did in 2008 after the Great Recession. Uh, one of the reasons is because people have so much more equity in their homes now than they did when the Great Recession came along. Um, at, at the moment, people have seen their home values rise exponentially over the course of the past couple of years. And so even if prices drop, if values drop, they still have a lot in their homes. And so folks who are dealing with foreclosure or other issues still have the opportunity to sell their houses, which would mean that the impacts of any kind of drop uh, would not be the same as they had been in uh, previous years. And so I think that was a, a good realization and good to hear about as we're starting to see the housing market settle. Kirk, what were your biggest takeaways? Um, everyone is still up in arms over the state of the office market. Um, it's the big sort of unanswered question in all of this. Um, there are people on various um, sides of the dividing line as to whether the office market returns to where it was prior to the pandemic or whether it stays in sort of the state of flux, as it were. Um, there are markets around the country where you see like lower leasing rates, such as in San Antonio, where it's like 83 to 84% leased, but only 20% of it is occupied at any given time, um, which is obviously a huge pain in the rear for office landlords who probably go to sleep at night wondering what's going to happen with their properties. And then in the ensuing months and years, what happens when all these leases start to roll over? Because we saw a lot of office leasing activity in the mid 2010s or so. And then with these seven to 10 year leases, when they start to roll over, what do these landlords do when a lot of the tenants that they have are going to be using a lot of a lot less space than they previously had prior to the pandemic? You know, one of the things I thought was particularly interesting talking about office space was the discussion related to 
converting office space into residential, which hits both of our, our areas of interest. And the idea that it's happening a little bit more frequently, but it's still not happening often enough. And Detroit is doing it with a little bit of regularity. But can you talk a little bit more about what you you pulled from that? Yeah. So when um, so there was a CBRE expert who was on a panel, uh, Julie Whalen is her name, and she and her team studied um, the top 25 markets for office space in the nation and came to the determination that there was maybe somewhere between 30 and 35 office conversions to what essentially is something other than office that happened between 2016 and 2020. Um, that's increased recently, but Detroit has had a pretty stellar track record in recent years of turning a lot of its old office buildings into residential. Um, Dan Gilbert turned the Detro the old Detroit Free Press building into residential. Um, West Bloomfield developer Joe Barbat has done something similar. Richard Karp and Richard Hosey have done uh, similar things. So this is not something that's necessarily um, a foreign concept to people in Detroit. Uh, it's really sort of a question of how these things get financed and how these sort of materialize. There have been efforts at the federal level, um, including ones that have been championed by Gary Peters and Debbie Stabenow to offer financial incentives to turn old, dilap maybe not dilapidated, but maybe obsolete office buildings into something other than office. Um, but that hasn't really gained a whole lot of traction just yet. Um, there are organizations like the DDP and others that are behind it, but those federal incentives have not really played out just yet. So any effort that we might see going forward um, is really sort of contingent upon market demand. And when you have a market that's as heavily dominated by office space as we are, um, it sort of remains to be seen how many of these sort of underused office buildings actually end up being converted into something else. Uh, that's sort of an open-ended question at this point, I think. And CBRE should have some more data coming out about their study soon. I'm looking forward to seeing that. One of the other takeaways that I had from that conversation was related to an Atlanta developer, Mark Toro, who mentioned that we're not going to see all of the office that's empty converted. He talked about needing to have a sense of place that you're not going to have nowhere buildings that people want to live in. And I think that Detroit has a lot of uh, somewhere buildings that they have character and have more opportunity. Do you think that's the case as well? Uh, Detroit itself, certainly, although when you talk about the suburbs, that's also one of the sort of unanswered questions here. Um, in the 1980s, a lot of the suburbs, um, in large part due to uh, sort of generous federal tax benefits, as well as sort of like um, um, in, in increased perceived demand, um, the suburbs got really heavily built out and are probably overbuilt as it is. So communities like Farmington Hills and Southfield and Troy that have millions and even in some cases more than 10 million square feet of office space um, probably don't need all of that. Um, they've consistently for the last 10 years or more been at, you know, 18 to 22 percent vacancy. Um, a lot of that is due to well, we just don't have that many office tenants rolling around looking for big blocks of space. But also a lot of these buildings have not had a serious amount of capital improvement. So therefore, they're not as desirable and therefore stay vacant. Um, what happens with those? Um, we've seen some efforts in communities like Southgate, for example, to turn an old office building, a 14-story tower, I believe it is, in Southgate into residential. Now, has that gained steam just yet? Um, not quite, um, but we could see some examples of that going forward. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, when, when the money starts to make sense, uh, we'll start to see it, I think. 
Speaking of the suburbs, one of the other things that I found interesting on the residential end of things is that people used to move to the suburbs to save money on their rents. And that's not something that you can do with as much frequency because rents have been rising as much as they have that people used to have the opportunity to move further out to save money. And it's no longer the case in the same way that it had been. Do you see that playing out more around here uh, recently? I believe so. We're seeing rents continuing to rise. I need to look at more detailed numbers to see the extent to which that's been the case. Um, but it's my understanding that rents in the city are matching rents in the suburbs more closely. There's less uh, differential between what people can get in one place versus another. So going back to the conversation related to conversion, there was an example that was given about uh, incentives for conversion and cities who are seeing that they have empty office space and can find better things to do with it. And I believe the the example oh, the that Calgary I recall, thing. what's that? The Calgary thing. The Calgary thing. Calgary that's, was giving, I think, crazy. $75 a square foot to help with office shrinkage. One of the things that was discussed on one of the panels was a city of Calgary incentive um, that offers developers something to the tune of $75 a square foot to rehabilitate old office buildings and turn them into something else. And that's just not something that we in Detroit or um, I think really other parts of the country see that that sort of direct specific type of subsidy match on a per square foot basis. Um, that's a very large amount of money that a specific city is throwing at this particular problem. Um, I'm not aware of any sort of efforts that are in play right now to have something like that locally, um, but it's something that I think probably developers and governments should take a look at, not necessarily for adoption, but here's something that one community is doing. Do you think it would make a difference in Detroit? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, is it a good idea? Um, I'm not going to weigh in on that, but it would make a difference for sure. Um, that's a large amount of money when you're talking about construction costs that are increasing and have been increasing for a number of years due to a variety of issues, whether it's the supply chain or the labor shortage or any number of other factors that are contributing to a project that at one point in time cost $30 million and is now $50 million. Um, when you're talking throwing 75 bucks a foot at that, that's not something that's not something to sneeze on. And I'll note too that the CBRE data showed that the average age of a building that was converted was 81 years old. Right. The average size was about 175,000 square feet. So we're talking mid-rise buildings, older properties, and not things that are are from the 80s and still need to to find a new home. Kirk, we were talking a little bit about the the future of office space and how there are still questions about it. Some of that has still been protected after the past couple of years of, of COVID-19 because of the long leases. Can you talk a little bit about what happens in the next few years as leases start to come up? Yeah, so um, the general thinking is that um, office users, as their leases come due, will generally need less space. Um, more other people are working from home, either on a permanent um, full-time basis or on sort of like a hybrid work schedule where they're only in two or three days a week, um, therefore requiring less space, which in turn hurts landlords who have to lease that space to other tenants. Um, once those leases come due, the landlords can have to figure out what they have to do um, in order to keep that space uh, generating money, uh, whether that means finding another tenant who's able to lease it, which um, these days seems uh, in increasingly unlikely, 
or at the very least increasingly more difficult, or whether that means converting it into a different type of space, um, which is kind of as envisioned by some developers around the country who are sort of uh, planning, you know, converting one floor into a different use after an office tenant leaves, for example. Um, that's sort of how these things are, are anticipated to play out once these leases come, um, come due and start rolling over. Do you have any predictions about what makes sense here? In terms of? That future. In terms of the uh, future use of the space? Mm-hmm. If I did, I would be in the wrong industry. <laughs> <laughs> millions to be made with that crystal ball. Mil millions to be made with the crystal ball. Um, I, I I would imagine that there are a whole lot of um, cards up landlord sleeves right now in terms of different types of uses, whether that means converting some of these floors that are unused into like a co-working space or figuring out some other type of use. Um, I imagine that there are options out there. Um, we haven't seen some of the more creative possibilities, I suppose, but those will those will come out in the next couple of years, I assume. Yeah, there were some people talking about building vertical farms and doing some other very creative things. Hydroponic farms. Office space. Yes, absolutely. Do you see um, Detroit office space as a place to, to have lettuce in the future? You know what? I don't know enough about hydroponic farming to be able to answer that in any sort of educated fashion. But I assume that if there's um, th if there's money to be made, people will find a way to make it through hydroponic farming. It's always the case, isn't it? Indeed. Speaking of money to be made and people finding a way to do it, Kirk and I were able to pull aside uh, a gentleman named Mason Alstock, who is um, in, in charge of building something in Georgia called Rowan. And we had a conversation with him a little bit about innovation and the innovation districts here. Um, for a little bit of background, Rowan is a project that's in a triangle between Atlanta, Athens, and Gainesville in Georgia and is intended to bring uh, innovation in agriculture, medical fields, and some other pieces together. It's kind of a, a research triangle sort of setting. Kirk, can you set us up a little bit more about that conversation? Yeah. So um, when we... Um... When, when I went into this panel, um, I immediately started thinking of the, call it three so-called innovation districts or innovation areas that are proposed for the city of Detroit. Um, there's one that's well underway um, for Michigan Central Station that Ford Motor Company is doing, um, geared towards autonomous and electric vehicles. There's one that the Illich family and Stephen Ross are attempting to do um, um, called the Detroit Center for Innovation for the University of Michigan um, on a plot of land that's behind the Fox Theater. And there is another one that uh, is on the old Wayne County jail site, um, the half-built Wayne County jail site that's been demolished on Gratia that Dan Gilbert is trying to do. So given Mason's sort of expertise in, in this field, we were curious about sort of how, how these play out in sort of a condensed urban area and, and how they function together, given that they're being put forward by three very different organizations and in some cases organizations that might be competing for talent and business uh business tenants so how we think about it at rowan we are additive to what's going on in tech squares what's going on in athens and what's going on in other places across the state which is why it was so important for us at the highest level in governance to have georgia tech on our board to have the university of georgia and emory on our board so that we can support the great work that they're doing in innovation districts and building out these technology networks um, and rowan being able to contribute something that's unique that's different than 
Tech Square or mm-hmm. what's what what uh, UGA is doing in Athens, um, okay. but it's still tremendously valuable to the state of Georgia and to our community and recruiting industry. So I think it's all about how they are or are not networked together in terms of like interfacing and like what what they're interfacing, to communicating with one another. Um, being, uh, you know, understanding kind of where each one sees their value proposition, what they bring to the table. Uh-huh. Again, I'm, I'm thinking about George. I, I don't know yeah. in tremendous detail uh, all of the things going on in Detroit. I'm yeah. familiar with all, all of those kind of at a high level. Sure. Um, but I think globally it's, it's having that communication because there's a shared interest there, right? And yeah. when I think about Rowan, we all have the same last name, Georgia. Regardless of what project you're leading, we have a desire to advance the community, the vision for the state of Georgia, the people of Georgia. How you do that manifests in a lot of different ways. And I think that same um, culture can be transferred anywhere. Mm-hmm. Those seven companies, do they have existing offices in the state already? Or are they startups? Know. Are they? Okay. Um, you know, anytime those yeah. projects come, they're so confidential. Where I don't, they all have project names, you would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so all I know, you know, generally is kind of the field that they're in, that they align with our covenants because we share those, of course, with our economic development folks. But, um, but I, I don't know. But you don't have a sense if they're moving from elsewhere in the state to Rowan or if they're not here at all. The, those that I am aware of in some at, at a level of detail mm-hmm. are not in Georgia. They are coming from Europe. They're coming from the Northeast. They're coming from somewhere else. It is not a transplant from mm-hmm. one Georgia location to Rowan. These are folks that are would be new, new jobs, new opportunities to partner around R&D and our universities and talent and looking for growth. So they really are complementary then to the, the tech square and these other right. areas. Right, right. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, too, goes back to if you know about Science Square that Georgia Tech is leading Mm -hmm. in Midtown um, and um, Portal Innovation in Chicago is a life science startup group, kind of like a and j Well, they're going to host and cultivate and grow life science and biotech companies in Midtown. Amazing. As those companies scale, they may need five acres. They may need a different type of facility, but we want to keep them in Georgia. That facility may be in Midtown, but it could be at Rowan. It could be somewhere else. So I think it's that alignment and understanding of what you each have to offer, so you can keep those folks here. Is that that kind? Of, uh, is that sort of where you envision Rowan sort of picking up the pieces, like something starting in Midtown Atlanta and in, in you know a thousand square feet or whatever, maybe then just branching out and needing much more space over and could be absolutely could be. almost this cultivation strategy, right? I go back to an agricultural term, right? Yeah, and you kind of. You, you plant the seedlings, you let them grow, you nurture it, you build a community around them, you bring in investment, they build that trust and confidence in that community. They want to stay. We need to have as many options as possible for them to be able to say yes and staying in Georgia and not going somewhere else. How important is the size of Rowan as a whole to that? You know, if we're looking at these smaller projects that have more limited space, is it necessary to have that much room for growth for these to be successful? I think it's a unique um, value proposition of Rowan because we do have the scale. I, I think you can certainly scale companies, grow, be tremendously successful in a variety of sizes. Uh, but I think it is a unique piece of the Rowan story in having 2,000 acres and a company can come in and build a single tenant building on two acres. They could be uh, in a multi-tenant building or they could buy 30, 40, 50 acres and have more of a campus setting. Um, so. So I think it's just one of those things that sets us apart. 
in the market. What kind of like public buy-in is needed for stuff like this? Like incentives or just like even just like community outreach and stuff yeah. like that. Detroit has a long history of like um, developers sort of like running roughshod over neighborhoods right. and stuff like yeah. that. Just, yeah. just you know not caring. Right. Um, what type of um, communication and outreach needs to be done with things like this? Tremendous amount of outreach. I mean, our first two years, we launched publicly in September of 2020. The past 24 months have been community engagement. Dozens of town halls and community conversations, social media, online meetings, in person at the community center, at Rotary Clubs. I mean, you name it. I've been there or one of our team members have been there to meet with the public and not just inform them and say, this is what we're doing and hope you like it. Yeah. But to say, what do you think? You know, what are you seeing? Whatever we create is for you and your kids that are coming after you and other folks that move here. Mm -hmm. So in order for it to be successful, you need to be excited about it. You need to be able to contribute, not just be informed. And so I think it's a huge part of Building a knowledge community is not a real estate project. Mm -hmm. Real estate is just a platform to live out that nonprofit mission and vision. Mm -hmm. So what shifted because of that process? I know there wasn't a, a solid plan going in. There were ideas. But what have the takeaways been from that public process? Big ones were accessibility to green space. Mm -hmm. um, people were asking, you're taking this big chunk of undeveloped land in a growing county. We know it's going to turn into something. But if I don't work there, am I still going to be able to access that something? And that desire to have parks and trails and get down to the river and uh, open space was something we heard in just about every meeting. So as a part of that, we started with thinking about our green space connectivity and then connecting even outside of Rowan for a regional trail system that goes into Barrow County, in throughout Gwinnett County. Ultimately, maybe we connect into the city of Atlanta. I'd love to know Clyde Higgs at the Beltline is a great guy. Maybe we could get a, a path all the way into the Beltline mm -hmm. in town. So so we're thinking, I mean, in that way, mm -hmm. that was one big takeaway um, as, uh, as the project um, kind of evolved. The other question was around residential. Um, people did want to have something different and this not be just a big residential development. The market is meeting the needs for housing kind of around Gwinnett County. Mm -hmm. So while we'll have some multifamily residential to support workers that are there or folks that want to live within Rowan, it's not going to be a place where there's going to be single family homes or thousands and thousands of residential units that are a part of the project. Um, we're leading with office research innovation as our primary use. And then these other amenities and uses kind of outside of that. That was one big piece of obviously, the Athens, Atlanta, Gainesville triangle and being in the middle of it was key to that. These are yeah. much more urban settings, the ones we're talking about. Yeah. Is there anything that you can kind of suggest for those that are in more urban areas that are, you know, not necessarily trying to build that whole community around it, but still take that innovation piece? It's not rocket science. It's it's spending time on the ground. It's meeting with people. Some folks come in hot and they've got something burning that they want to share and say or a concern. And you just need to be able to give that space to be able to listen. Um, and every time that's happened with Rowan, we've been able to address the concern, provide additional information, correct their understanding or take that in and integrate it into how we're planning the project. And I think, again, you can it's not rocket science. We can do it in, a, in anywhere. Um, is making those intentional connections, making yourself available, showing that you are gathering that feedback in a meaningful way, create a pathway with technology to be able to keep that conversation ongoing, even digitally. Um, and that, that uh, again, not always easy, but 
particularly for a mission-driven project, it's a priority. You have to do that. After that conversation, do you feel that there is a benefit from being so close to each other? Is there something to be gained by proximity as opposed to having large distances between some of these projects? Uh, there could be. Um, how that actually materializes is um, one of the like devil in the details types things. Um, you want to be sure, it seems, based on what Mason was saying, that these three groups are, are talking to one another and communicating. Um, but uh, whether they can do that, we just sort of need to wait and see. Uh, these are all topics and conversations that we'll be exploring in the coming weeks and months as we uh, continue our reporting. I think there's a lot to be learned from what we heard in the various panels, and we're excited to bring it all to you as we go forward. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to The Buildup, a production of Cranes Detroit Business. You can learn more and read our stories and hear more podcasts at www.cranesdetroit.com. Hear all the episodes on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts.